One of the many celebrations that was delayed because of the coronavirus outbreak was the 50th year celebration of the Apollo 13 lunar landing attempt. The ill-fated flight took off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida on April 11, 1970. This was nine months after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin of the Apollo 11 project took their first steps on the moon. Two days into the journey, one of the two oxygen tanks ruptured. This knocked out two electrical power-generating fuel cells and damaged the third. So the crew was going to be low on oxygen and low on power, and they hadn't even made it to the moon yet. Houston, we've had a problem. These are the iconic words that seem to spell certain doom. The astronauts were 200,000 miles from Earth. Just returning back to that little blue dot in the middle of space was a challenge enough. Without a heat shield that they usually had, they weren't really even sure if they were going to survive the re-entry. In addition to the normal communication blackout, there was an extra 90 seconds of silence, 90 seconds longer than normal. The controllers on Earth grew alarmed, and they started to get saddened, thinking that this meant the death of their friends, the death of their project. Finally, three billowing parachutes appeared over the Pacific. Maybe you were one of the billion people that were watching and waiting. Maybe you remember seeing the image on TV or on the front page. When the problem first occurred, around this time of the 50th year anniversary of the mission, Jim Lovell, the mission commander, now 92 years old, he explained not landing on the moon or dying in space are two different things. And so we forgot about landing on the moon. This was about survival. How do we get home? How do we get home? That's everyone's question. Most are still asking, where is home? If we know Christ is our Savior, we know that this world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. But it might as well be 200,000 miles away because we don't have the power or the first clue of how to get there. But Jesus does. Jesus has done it. And he's gone before us. And he told us that he has gone before us so that we can follow him. Our passage approaches the question and answers it. How do we get home? It's attacking the short-sighted skepticism of the day that it was written in. So we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 44. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but the bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised 
is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Who is being discussed here as the dead? Was talking about believers, those who have trusted in Christ, who have died. This is similar to the question that's asked in verse 12 that we've looked at. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And the argument continues. How are the dead raised in verse 35? And verse 42 talks about, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. This whole chapter is explaining how those who have believed in Christ as their Savior will be raised from the dead to be with him. They will be raised to glory just as Jesus was. Christ took our sins on his body so that we could take his righteousness. Christ died and was buried and was risen from the dead so that those who follow him, when we die, we will be raised from the dead also to be with him. So how are we raised? How will we get home? I can remember a, a scary story, that the type that would be told around the campfire when I was a kid. It had to do with some friends who had lost someone that they really cared about. And so they went to a, a witch doctor or a uh, some sort of shaman or something like that. And, and they they paid this person and they said, we just want our friend back. He says, so you want him to, to come back from the dead? And they say, yes, we want him to come back from the dead. And they, he asked them, are you sure you want him back from the dead? And they're like, of course, we want him to come back from the dead. And he says, okay, and so let it be. And he did whatever spell he needed to be, which is, of course, impossible, but he brought their friend back from the dead. The next thing they hear is this screaming and moaning and, and, and their, their friend is scratching and crawling and, and they're horrified because they realize he's brought back from the dead, but he still has the body that shouldn't be able to sustain life and that's all that he has. He's a zombie. This is kind of similar, though, to the question, the challenge that the skeptics were challenging the Corinthian church with and, and that the, the believers in Corinth were starting to crumple under this pressure of, of well, well I, I don't know, how are the dead really raised? The skeptics were asking two questions. Okay, how exactly are the dead raised and what kind of body will they be raised with? And thinking about this, you, you need to understand in the Greek culture, they were very comfortable with the idea of disembodied spirits. As we've talked about before, they're, they're very comfortable with the Jacob Marley type from the story of Scrooge that, that would wander the earth and, and somehow uh, pay for their ill deeds. Or, or they were very comfortable with the idea that everyone was just a miserable spirit after they died. Some of the Jewish theories that developed over time from some of the Jewish rabbis asked the same question. How is it that God would resurrect a dead body? And rabbis who believed in a resurrection, they developed a, the idea that God would use a particular neck bone 
that they believed to be indestructible. Because the question was, what happens if someone dies at sea? What happens if their body is burned in a fire? What is there left to be resurrected? They couldn't get around this idea of how can a dead body come back to life and sustain life? So like I said, they developed this theory of, well, maybe there's this one neck bone that's indestructible, and God raises the body somehow from that. It's kind of an interesting thing that we've talked about before. When we're, you're living in a particular epoch, you can't really understand fully what is the epoch that you're not living in. And so just in the same way, we need to hear from God and what he has to say about how the dead are raised. But 1 Corinthians 15 actually explains to us that God has a system in science. God has a system in his creation. And he also applies quite a bit of his own special work to the situation as well. So the verses say, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? It's very typical for a teacher to have a hypothetical opponent that they're answering questions that they know that their students are being challenged by. And uh, Paul writes very clearly, you foolish person, or literally how senseless or thoughtless you are in asking these questions. It's a standard rhetorical insult. Jewish as well as Greek writers would use this for someone who raised an ignorant or even an immoral objection to the idea being discussed. And so we see from the answer that Paul gives, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that evidence for a lot of the way that God does things in resurrecting us is seen in nature. Speaking about what a farmer typically experiences, the statement is made, what you sow, speaking of seed being sown into the ground, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be. He says in verse 38, But God gives it a body as he chooses, and each kind of seed its own body. What's being used here is deductive reasoning. If A equals B and B equals C, then we can deduce that A equals C. Paul is drawing off of relatively widely understood principles such as from farming. He's beginning with the premise that the seed that goes into the ground must die in order to become something else. And this accepted premise is from the reality of farming, as I said. And it's answering the question, the first question, how are the dead raised? The answer is the resurrection works like farming. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I guess he could throw back at them, how would a person in a normal body live forever? The body must be changed. What is being described as sown is the seed. The sacrificing of the seed is the natural process of growing a crop, burying it rather than eating it, deciding, I'm going to take this handful of grain and rather than making a roll of bread with it, I'm going to sow it into the ground and it's going to become something more. He talks about the bare kernel. It's a dead-looking, bare, dry seed. It's related to a dead person who's perishable, undignified, powerless. And the second question that's asked is, with what kind of body do they come? And the answer is simply, our earthly body is changed 
into a glorified body. Don't let this natural body deceive you. God does a work in creating a glorified body for us. There's, there's much that continues from our earthly body, but there's much improvement. The resurrected body isn't a decaying continuation or a switching to another body. You know, Jesus wasn't still bruised and bleeding, but yet Jesus didn't take up a new body and leave his old one in the tomb. Also, the glorified body, it it isn't just a renewal of our body or a refurbishing of our body or a restored version. It's a new glorified body. There's no other term for it. It's like a brand new plant that comes from the burying of a seed. And the premises from agriculture here is what is sown dies. So get over the idea that it requires death to live eternally. And what is raised, it's the same. It has continuity with what is planted, just like with the seed and the, and the plant that comes from it. But it's different and better. There's a fullness of greater life and potential. And so the question here is, what type of body will they have? This leads to another of what man already accepts about different types of bodies that we're accustomed to. Where he says in verse 39, For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Now, this is not a biology lesson. All right, But he's talking about how there are different kinds of bodies that we are accustomed to seeing all the time, every day. And then he gets into religious beliefs. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. And there's the glory of the sun, and the glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. From, for star differs from star in glory. So the premises here that that are already accepted come from biology. There's distinct bodies between species. Uh, They come from the spirit world, and these would have been accepted within that culture. There's the supernatural beings. There's the natural beings. There's distinctions between natural and supernatural. And then there's the premise that was already accepted from astronomy. There's distinct bodies between the heavenly bodies, if you will. Everything in these categories has a type of body that represents and helps to classify it. Yet, there's still variances even between these groups without crossing over between them. So the question is, what kind of body does does the resurrected person have? And the answer is, our earthly body is changed into a glorified body, for one. And secondly, our earthly body isn't changed into another kind of body. We don't become an animal. We don't become an angel. We don't become a planet. This separates biblical truth from a lot of religious folklore, from legends and mythology where someone is turned into a mountain like the the uh, mountain outside of Mexico City. I love saying this name of it, Popocatépetl. It goes back to a legend in which a maiden is waiting for her warrior, and when he comes back, he finds her dead, and he uh, holds a torch up. So one of them ends up becoming the volcano, and the other one ends up becoming the mountain range, which is the, the lover who had been waiting for him and then died. We don't become a mountain. We don't become a planet. We, we don't become the moon. He's separating biblical 
understanding of the resurrected body from folklore. So the two premises here that are accepted here is what you plant continues on to become a more robust version of that. And this becomes this comes through sacrifice of what is sown. And there's different kinds of bodies in the world with different characteristics between those kinds. We accept that. Well, verses 42 through 44 are the conclusions that can be deduced about resurrected bodies. And that's that followers of Christ who die gain an upgraded, an empowered, a perfected, glorified version of their earthly bodies. So verses 42 through 44 state this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What is sown, it's describing, is carrying on the analogy of the seed. It's perishable. It's dishonored. It's weak. It's a natural body. But what will be raised, using resurrection terminology, notice, is an imperishable, glorious, power-infused, spiritual body, something that we can describe by no other term but glorified. God means for this message to be more than a lesson of the biology of the resurrection body. But so far, without application, my message is only amounting to a hill of beans, a whole lot of useless knowledge. See in these verses how you can walk with God more closely and more confidently, and we can look forward to walking with him and each other unhindered for eternity. I want you to trust God's sovereign system for your resurrection. On this this idea about the grain and how it relates to the resurrected body, answering that question, he says back in verse 37, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. The tense here of the term that God has chosen, it signifies a decisive action made once for all, but isn't really given a time determinant. God planned what should be and all the things that should take place accordingly. He has a sovereign system for your resurrection. The same type of regularity of God's system is promised regarding our resurrection. The same type of design. Where he says in verse 42, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. And verse 44 is spoken with an authoritative finality. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving an authoritative declaration that those who trust in Christ will be raised from the dead. The spiritual body that's described here is a body that is influenced and enlivened by the Holy Spirit. It's not describing us as being spirits one day. 
will be given resurrected bodies, still physical but glorified bodies, and they won't be made of fallen flesh. One writer says belief in the resurrection was like belief in seed time and harvest. Neither could be completely understood, but both were real. As a plant which sprouted from the seed was directly linked to it, but remarkably different from it, so too was the relationship of a natural and a resurrected body. End quote. You know, Kelly's favorite flower is the tulip, but not tulip bulbs. Tulip bulbs are ugly. They're temperamental. Tulips are what they become if someone besides me plants them. A gardener doesn't put a tulip bulb in the ground and then is surprised by, wow, how this beautiful thing grow out of it. They expect it. They know what's going to come from that tulip bulb, and they know how to do it right. No one walks up and says, what is this? I put a, this ugly ball in the ground. I wasn't expecting this flower. How do you trust God's sovereign system for your resurrection? I want to encourage you, as you see the flowers of spring, think of how something was buried to make that happen. Someone designed it to be so. And that same God that designed those flowers and the corn that's going in the ground has designed you to be raised as a perfect physical representation of what he made you to be. You can trust in that. You can trust his sovereign system for your resurrection. Also, secondly, you can trust God's active work in your resurrection. Back to these same verses. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body. This here, it's the different tense than what is used next when it says he has chosen. Here it's talking about God actively, presently, all the time, continuously, giving those plants, giving those who die in Christ a body. God is actively overseeing his creation as it behaves as he designed it to do so. He's also described as giving each expression of that design its body. Again, there's continuity between the seed and the plant, but it's not uniformity. God gives each seed its own body. And the same is true for us when he raises us as he did Christ. We ourselves, not clones of, his, of God's ideal. Sorry, you're not going to look like me. I know that's disappointing. And verse 42 through 44 emphasizes God's active involvement. Where you see, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is in the passive voice. That means what's being described is not doing any of the action. The action is being done on it. The believer's body is sown by God, and it is raised by God. Notice how this idea is reinforced as it's expressed repeatedly. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Leon Morris says, Plants do not rise, and people do not rise, of their own volition, nor do they do it by chance. 
You've probably heard of the riddle of the Sphinx. It's from Greek mythology, and it's a story of how man after man would come to the Sphinx, and the Sphinx would tell him this riddle. And it wasn't until this one particular man came and could answer it, and all the people that came before were eaten by the Sphinx because they couldn't answer the riddle. And the riddle asked this, What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs in the evening, and no legs at night? And the answer, as you've probably heard it, is a man. He walks on four legs in the morning because as a baby he's crawling, but soon he's walking on two legs for most of his life. But then, as he gets older, he might be using a cane, walking on three legs in the evening, and then finally no legs at night, meaning he has laid down and he dies. Just as the riddle describes, moving from helplessness as a little child back to helplessness, as an older adult, to death. This is life's pattern. But there's no riddle for you to figure out. You can trust God's active work in your resurrection. And because of God's sovereign system, which we see all around us, and his active involvement, you can trust God's design for glory in your resurrection. This is what he's saying. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. That's God's design. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Notice it says again, it is sown, going back to being planted like a seed. And it's not grown from a seed, it's raised. It's raised up like Christ himself. A combining of these ideas that have come together here. Knowing Christ is your Savior, you are perishable. Your physical body will wear out and expire. And something will need to be done with it rather quickly. It's perishable. Even while I'm living, it seems like my body goes to pot. But our glorified body will be imperishable. Time will have no effect on it. Also, a dead body is without honor or dignity of its own. We must choose to give it honor. We must clothe it. We must find a good mortician for a temporary fix of it. No one is going to sit up in their coffin one day and say, hey, show me some respect, unless they're playing a joke on their friends and on their family. But knowing Christ is your Savior, you'll be raised in glory. Every glorified saint is going to shine with unimaginable beauty. You'll be the most beautiful expression of what God made you to be. I am going to be six feet tall. And all of you other guys aren't going to need hair to cover your ugly heads anymore. But you know what? I still don't think that there is going to be a single mirror in heaven. I I mean, nothing really tells me that. I'm just guessing at it. But just like we won't need a lamp because of the glory of God, his beauty is going to be what's displayed on every magazine cover. If we have magazines there, I don't know. But continuing on, when something doesn't work at all, we say, This battery is dead. This phone is dead. My dead body will be weak, meaning it will be powerless. It'll be like an appliance that's been unplugged. 
but my glorified body will be power infused. God himself will be my power source for all of eternity. And all of these characteristics, perishable, lacking honor, weakness, they describe the natural body because the natural body has to live by the laws of nature. For instance, one of the laws of nature is gravity. And I don't know about you, but the older we get, the more obedient we become to gravity. Everything keeps moving toward the ground. People buy all sorts of suspenders and girdles to try to hold it all up. But the longer we live by the natural laws, it means that once we also get on the ground, it's a lot harder to get off of it. Our bodies obey the law of gravity. The natural body also obeys all other natural laws. For instance, the law that a body at rest tends to stay at rest. I can hear you saying an amen as you're listening to this video right now. Also, the natural law that a body keeps moving in the same direction unless it's compelled to change. Most of you wives find this to be true of your husband. We don't change unless we're compelled to do so. Well, every natural body also follows the natural law that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. We get to the place where we know I'm going to be sorry if I eat that sort of food. I'm going to be sorry if I don't get this many hours of sleep. I'm going to be sorry if I drink that after this hour of the day. There is going to be a reaction if I take that action. Our natural body has to obey the laws of nature. But we'll be raised in a glorified spiritual body. Don't get this idea confused with a disembodied spirit. Knowing Christ as your Savior Following him in his resurrection means you will have a body that is suited for and expresses all that your spirit was created to be. And it'll be a physical body. The opposite, this is the opposite idea of having a natural body, having a spiritual body that can be totally in tune with the supernatural God himself. We won't be like Jesus in the sense that he is infinite and we will still be finite. We will still be kept in one place. We will still only be able to know so much knowledge. We will still only have so much power. But I look forward to seeing if I could pass through walls like he did. I'll admit it. And I think you probably feel the same way. Let me ask you something. Do you get tired of the fact that every product has to be replaced eventually? They break. They wear out. They become obsolete. Companies are always releasing the latest versions of their product. Car companies reveal this year's model. New phones are released, frustrating us when we can't navigate the new versions of it or when our old version starts getting glitchy because of the new operating system. Software companies release version 2.0, working out the bugs, adding new features, new protections against hackers and malware. The fact is this. You could buy a piece of technology, never use it, let alone wear it out. Set it on a shelf and take it off the shelf one day and it'll be useless because the technology left it behind. It is so frustrating. And because of this, it's hard for us to be able to comprehend being equipped with a body that lasts forever. But that's exactly what we're told here. And our present life sure tells us that we need something amazing in order to make it. We need something designed by and empowered by God himself. You can rest assured that if you know Christ as your Savior, you will be totally set for a fulfilling 
thrilling, abundantly overspilling eternal life. Let me share with you lyrics to a song that I want played at my funeral one day. This is not the end here at this grave. This is just a hole that someone made. Every hole was made to fill, and every heart can feel it still. Our nature hates a vacuum. This is not the hardest part of all. This is just the seed that has to fall. All our lives we till the ground until we lay our sorrows down and watch the sky for rain. There is more, more than all this pain, more than all our falling down and getting up again. There is more, more than we can see from our tiny vantage point in this vast eternity. There is more. Rest assured that God has designed a body for you that is a continuation of you. If you know Christ is your Savior, this body, it's prepared to experience all of the more that he has for you as well. Father, I pray that you'd help my friends to trust you. I pray that you'd help them to trust in you. I pray, Lord God, that you'd give them the joy of living each day knowing that with each frustration that pops up, each hindrance that our bodies present, it is only a reminder, Lord, that one day we will be unhindered. We will be without frustration. The tears will be gone. The pain will be a memory, if that. And we will be with you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ for eternity. Thank you, Lord God, for your system of saving a people for yourself. Thank you for your activity. Thank you for your design that allows you to give us exactly what we need for eternity. And I pray all these things in the name of the one that made it possible, Jesus. Amen.